Amen. 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 Uh, the, the Christmas meditation I want to lead us in uh, tonight has to do with the Star of Bethlehem. Uh, we have at Woodland Hills Church here been talking about the Magi the last couple weeks. And so I'm going to read the, the same passage uh, that we've been reading the last couple weeks. It comes out of the book of Matthew, chapter 2. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, who were uh, professional astrologers, the word magos means magician, uh, these Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They note here that they just somehow know that there is a king that has been born. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Note that, that they saw his star, whatever that means, some star that pertains to, to, to him. These are pagan astrologers from the east, from Persia, members of the royal court in Persia, who would do the divining for the king on his decisions. And somehow, some way, they know about a star that signifies a king being born in uh, Jerusalem, in, in Judea. Now, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed because he was the king. He didn't like anyone else coming along being king. And all Jerusalem with him, because when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And now they're going to quote uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which 500 years before Christ was born specified that the Savior would come from this very small, unimportant town, Bethlehem. It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Note that Herod's interested in this stuff, but the religious leaders apparently aren't. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He was lying, of course. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east, notice it was past tense, they had seen it, and apparently it had disappeared. That will become important later on. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, you see, apparently it reappeared, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Let's pray for a moment. Father, <clears throat> I would pray to God that, that you would take this uh, passage and these reflections on this passage and use them, God, to uh, change our lives. We're so bad at changing ourselves. Our willpower doesn't do it. We need your word and the authority of your word and the working of your spirit to change us. And I pray, God, that some here uh, tonight, maybe who don't know you personally as the beautiful Savior, would, would come to know you as the beautiful Savior. And that they would uh, make that commitment to you, Lord. But just have your way here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage, as we've been reflecting on the last couple of weeks at Woodland Hills Church, has uh, just taken on some, some uh, pretty unique and, and um, uh, unexpected uh, uh, turns of significance. It's taken on a meaning that is very profound. Among the amazing things in this passage is this. 
we learn throughout Scripture that God does not like astrology. He doesn't like any kind of occult dabbling, doesn't like divination, psychic readings, all of that. The Bible is uniformly against. And yet here in this passage, we find God calling astrologers. The Magi were, were you know, some translations have it, wise men. Uh, others, you know, think that they were kings. But in fact, in the original, it says mag, uh, magos, which are magicians. They were professional astrologers. God calls these astrologers, these magicians, from Persia, a, a, a nation that has a long history of hostility with Israel, yet God calls them, doesn't approve of their astrology, but still calls them to come across the desert of uh, some 1,000 to 1,200 miles. It would have taken six to eight months on an average journey and uh, to come and worship the, the newborn king. And not only that, but he uses an astrological sign, the very kind of thing he forbids, to do that. And what, what the passage shows us is how God, uh, as much as he does not like astrologers, he, or astrology, he loves astrologers. And if there's a hungry astrologer, he will stoop to any depth to call them to himself. This is a God of outrageous grace who is just looking for people who have a hunger for him and will do anything possible Speak any language, if you will, that he needs to in order to pull people to himself. The astrologers speak the language of astrology. They're looking up at the sky, and so God here says, if you're looking up at the sky, then I'll give you a sign in the sky because I want you to come to me. And so he gives them a star. And this is what I want to just reflect on here tonight. What's up with this star thing? What's up with this star? It's an odd phenomenon. Uh, when I was, uh, my first year in college, as a freshman in college, I uh, totally lost my faith. I had taken a couple classes in science. Uh, I took a class in uh, New Testament as literature and some philosophy classes. I was going to be a philosophy major. Uh, and it, I, it screwed my brain all up. I, I got really mixed up. Uh, so I tried to become an atheist again. I was an atheist before I was a Christian, and I thought I'd have to go back to my atheism. I, I gave Christianity a good shot, but it turns out not to be true, so I abandoned the whole thing. And during this period of time, uh, it was a miserable period of time for me, but uh, I came to the conclusion that everything in the New Testament was just mythology, including this star story. In fact, I thought this probably just sort of epitomized the mythological nature of the New Testament. I mean, think about it. How plausible is it that some members of the royal court of Persia would see a star in the sky and travel eight, to eight months or so, 1,200 miles, uh, to worship a king, uh, and, and all because of the twinkling star? And not only that, but if there was a star in the sky, some kind of a phenomenon there, wouldn't there be other records of it in, the, in ancient history? We know that ancient people, the Babylonians and others, kept very meticulous record of, of uh, star activity. Um, and yet there's no star recorded around this time, no unusual phenomenon. We read about a <clears throat> supernova that occurred uh, in 5 B.C. We read about a uh, Halley's Comet that, uh, that occurred in 12 B.C., but nothing occurred around the, around the time of Christ, which would have been around 7 B.C. Our calendars are five to seven years off, and there's nothing that, that really would uh, you know, confirm this star in the sky. So I had written the whole thing off as fairy tale, mythology, just made-up fiction. Now, there's a professor at the University of Minnesota, an astronomer, pretty renowned and very popular on campus, named Carlos Kaufmanis. Um, and he, he gave a lecture. He, gives it, he used to give it every Christmas, just died last year. But uh, it, it, the lecture was called The Star of Bethlehem. 
And I went to this lecture thinking that he, being a smart person, couldn't possibly believe in the Bible, and therefore he would probably, you know, bash that story. And I went there with that kind of skeptical mindset. To my amazement, this man actually offered scientific evidence in support of the gospel story. And it kind of rocked my world. It didn't convert me on the spot, but it got me thinking. And I want to share a little bit about that, just to the... Uh, can I take a scientific perspective on the Star of Bethlehem? And then I want to take a, more of a personal perspective on the Star of Bethlehem. Now, you've got to know this. Astronomers, because the, the, the motion of the planets is uh, very regular, um, we can take uh, the, the, the trajectories of these stars and work them backwards to the point where now we can say, you pick out any date in, at any time in history, 3000 B.C. if you want, and we have computers that can tell us exactly what was going on in the heavenlies at that time. It's, it's a very exact science. Now, what we know, I'm going to offer four facts here about the Star of Bethlehem. Number one, we know that in 7 B.C., Jupiter and Saturn converged together under the sign of Pisces three times, on May 27th and October 5th and December 1st. Uh, the sign of Pisces is simply this. Uh, the, the zodiac is just that band that the, the, the sun uh, uh, follows in its annual cycle and that the, the stars rotate in. It's divided into 12 uh, blocks. Uh, astronomers use them to uh, just chart the, the motion of stars, but astrologers who give meaning to stars, they give different meaning to each of these quadrants, as it were. Pisces is one of these quadrants. And so uh, Jupiter and Saturn converged together, forming uh, a, a phenomenon that to the naked eye on Earth would have looked like one star, and it happened three times in 7 B.C., right around the time Christ was born, because our calendars are about seven years off. This happens once every 853 years. The last time they converged together, which would have been the evening of December 1st, uh, Mars also was included in on this convergence. And that happens, I'm told, about once every three and a half millennium. So it's a very rare and rather spectacular uh, heavenly occurrence. Now you're wondering, so what? Well, let's get inside the, the minds of the Magi. Remember, these are professional astrologers. They, they invested everything that went on in the heavenly realms with meaning. God doesn't agree with that. It's not like these things really have this meaning. But God is going to speak their language. Okay, So let's get inside their mind, and we might understand why they were willing to go across the desert to find the Christ child. Here's what we know about uh, uh, the ancient view of astrology. Um, Jupiter was regarded as being the king's star. When it appeared in certain unique formations, it was a sign that a king was being born. Saturn was regarded as Israel's star, and among some astrologers, especially Jewish astrologers, it was regarded as being the Messiah's star. Uh, it was, uh, some regarded, it, it's, it was called the shield of Israel. It was a sign that, that uh, uh, you know, that, that, uh, of the protection of Israel. The Messiah would further Israel's purpose in the world and things of that sort. That was the meaning that it had. Mars was uh, the star of war. When it appeared in certain configurations, it was a sign that war was, was, was coming. And Pisces was regarded as being the, uh, a unique uh, sign of Israel. It was called the House of the Hebrews. Uh, many of the ancient astrologers gave, uh, assigned each of these quadrants of the zodiac a particular nation uh, that was significant. And Pisces was uh, the sign that was over Israel. Um, so these magi here are seeing this rather unusual, in fact, very unusual, almost unprecedented phenomenon. 
where Jupiter and Saturn, the star of the king and the star of the Messiah, are coming together to form one star, and they're doing it in the house of Israel. And so we can begin to see why they would suspect that, if not be absolutely convinced, because these people lived by this, uh, that there was a king, an anointed king, maybe even a divine king that was being born in Israel. And thus they would say, we need to set out on behalf of our royal court and make peace with this king and pay him homage. Third fact is this. From uh, Babylon, where these magi came from, the convergences would have uh, occurred right over Palestine. So as they're looking at this unusual, almost unprecedented uh, astrological phenomenon, it's happening right over Palestine. So by following that star, they would come right to Palestine. Uh, We can suppose that they would have left right after the first convergence, which would have been the late May. They would need some time to pack, so they probably would have left off, you know, because it's a a six-month or so journey. Uh, They would have to take a lot of provisions for them. It's during the summertime. It's going to be very hot. They need a lot of provisions for them. So um, uh, give them a couple weeks to pack up. They would leave mid to late June. They would arrive in Palestine uh, sometime around early to mid-November. Now, at this time, the star is no longer in the sky. The the way the phenomena works is the stars come together, and then they they separate and and for a period of time disappear. Then they suddenly reappear, and they come together, and then separate, and then then disappear. So when they get there in mid-November, the star isn't there. This is when Herod asks them about these things. That's why he says, when did you first see the star? And uh, uh, that's why they're overjoyed when they see the star reappear. Now, here's the fourth interesting fact. When they're in Jerusalem now, and they're going to go looking for this, uh, this newborn king, the star reappears. Walking from Jerusalem, the last convergence on the evening of December 1st would have been actually uh, right at dusk when it would first appear and be brightest. It would have been just to the east of Bethlehem if you're standing in Jerusalem. But as the sky moves westward, it would have come right over Bethlehem. And so if they would have started out at dusk, uh, as walking towards us, the star would have led them directly to Bethlehem. In fact, the road that they walked on was the southwestern road and would have, in the two-hour journey that it would take from, to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, would have led them right over that star. And I, I heard this. It doesn't prove that that's what happened. It could have all been supernatural, but I don't think this is all coincidence. It, rend- it explains a whole lot. And as I was sitting there, uh, as a person who at that point in my life had concluded it was all mythological, this was disturbing to me. Because of this piece of, of the story, which seems to be the most mythological piece of the story, if this is rooted in actual history and can be uh, confirmed through science, well, then maybe the rest of the story is pretty valid too. And I didn't, you know, change my mind right then, but I began to do research. And what my research finally led me to several months later was that I've got a lot of reasons for believing that the Bible is, in fact, uh, historically valid and that this is not mythology. This is telling it like it really was. Uh, History, so far as we can discern from archaeology and history, so far as we can discern from astronomy, confirms the gospel story that we have from us. And that faces us with a decision. What are we going to do about that? Now, as, as interesting as that star stuff is, I find it very interesting. I, it's the kind of thing my mind just eats up. I need confirmation. Um, some people, it says you're boring me, so we'll move on. But the more important question is this. It's a fact that there was this unusual phenomenon. We can understand why the Magi would, would go this route. But the question is, what does it mean to us? So what? What does it mean to us? 
And there are, I think, three possible responses we could have to the star and to Antichrist. And in fact, all three are found in, this, uh, in Matthew's narrative. First of all, you get the response that Herod had. To Herod, the star was a threat. Herod did not like this star. Herod did not like this king. Herod was the guy in charge. He was the, the, the king of Israel. And, and the, uh, here, here this, the, the magi coming from a hostile nation show up. They're part of the royal court. And they're announcing that there's a new king that's going to arise. Herod does not like this, which is why he goes off to try to uh, kill the Christ child. A little footnote here. Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, all the, the newborn males, two years old and under, in Bethlehem were killed by Herod. And that was pretty typical of, of Herod. He was a, a demented, distorted person. He, he executed some members of his own family because he was paranoid. I mean, he, was, he wasn't the greatest guy in the world. Now, some people have thought that there were thousands and thousands of kids who were massacred. Uh, we, we, we tend to think of ancient cities the way we think of modern cities. But ancient cities were very, very small. The total population we know from archaeology, the total population of Bethlehem at this point probably would have produced 6 to 12 males in that category. Uh, so it, it was a massacre, but it wasn't like thousands and thousands. Still, it was very barbaric because Herod was trying, he was threatened by this king, threatened by this star. He wanted to defy fate and, and snuff out this, uh, this king. Herod's the guy in charge. He wants to keep his lordship. He wants to keep his authority. He wants to keep his power position. He wants to keep his decision-making capabilities. And the idea of bowing to a king higher than himself is repugnant to him. He's threatened by it and therefore has to stamp it out. And I believe that there's a lot of people in the world who have kind of a Herod's heart, especially in America. Most of us aren't kings of countries, but we would like to at least be king of our own life. I'm in charge. Greg Boyd is in the driver's seat. I do my own thing. I call my own shots. I go my own way. I can define my own right. I can define my own wrong. If I want it, I get it. If it pleases me, I do it. It's kind of the American way. It's that autonomous freedom, and, and, and we cling to it with, with all of our being, and it forms in us a Herod's heart. And the idea of bowing down to someone else, surrendering the lordship of our life over to someone else, well, if you have a Herod's heart, there's something in you that really resists that. Uh, you, you think immediately of the things that you might have to give up, the rights that you might have to give up, and, and there's a part of you that just doesn't want to do that. The thing about Herod that you got to know is that he was a miserable, 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 despondent person. Just as, as uh, joyless as they come, he died shortly after this narrative. His kingship, his rule, his sovereignty did not purchase him a whole lot in this life and certainly not in the next. And we've got to ask ourselves if we're inclined to have a Herod's heart and not want to bow down, to keep Christ at bay and not let him in on our life, you've got to ask the question, is it really working for you? Is that really giving you joy? Are you really living a fulfilled life? I mean, are things just, you know, is this, a, do you feel like you're just living life as good as life can be lived? And I submit to you that if you're honest with yourself, the answer to that question is no. There's something inside of you that knows that you're not Lord of your own life. You didn't choose to be born. How can you be Lord of your own life? You didn't choose where you're going to be born. How can you be Lord of your own life? You didn't choose who your parents were going to be. You didn't choose a lot of things in your life. You don't choose a lot of things in your life now. You're probably not going to choose when you die. Uh, how can you think you're Lord of your life? At some level, you know that your realm of decision-making is rather small and that there's a creator to whom uh, you owe allegiance and to whom you have to answer for what you do with the life that you have. But not only that, 
There's something inside of you that knows, if you are honest with yourself, that you're not fulfilled. This isn't cutting it. And the reason is this. You weren't created to be Lord of your own life. Uh, you can pursue that. You can chase that. But you know what? Even when you get it, you don't get it. And even when you think you get it, it's empty. You were created to be filled by something bigger than yourself, and his name is Jesus Christ. Uh, the thing about submitting to Jesus Christ is this. It's not like submitting to an earthly tyrant where you got to like be humiliated and bow down and all right, you know, I'll, I'll just give in to it. It's not like that at all. When you submit to Jesus Christ, you're submitting to your creator. You're submitting to the one who is the author of life itself. You are submitting to life itself. You're submitting to the one who is the author of all peace. You're submitting to peace itself. You're submitting to the one who is the author of all joy. You're submitting to joy itself. You're submitting yourself to the one who is the author of all love. You are submitting to love itself. And that can't be that bad. Uh, to, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ is to turn yourself over to, the, to, to love, to joy, to peace, and to find what your heart's been hungry for. The Bible says if you lose your life, you'll find it. And what it means is this. Give up trying to do your own thing. Give up trying to have your own way. Surrender the reins over to Jesus Christ. It's what you were created for. And when you do that, you find life, uh, eternal life, uh, life that goes with you beyond the grave. I encourage you to break your haired heart and surrender your life, the reins of your life, over to the Lord Jesus. Some struggle with a haired heart. There are others, however, who struggle with a second class of people in this narrative. And that's the religious leaders. The religious leaders that Herod called and asked the question about. The religious leaders weren't threatened by the star. They just didn't care. The star meant nothing to them. You see, the religious leaders, uh, they, they had it all together. Religious leaders, they were on the top of the pecking order in Jewish society. Uh, they had their religion. They were good, decent folks. They were admired by everybody. Their religion was working for them. Their life was working for them. They had it kind of all together. They had the intellectual knowledge about where the Messiah was going to be born, uh, whereas the Magi didn't. They knew a lot more truth than the Magi. They had a lot more going for them theologically than the Magi, but they weren't hungry. They were too satisfied with their life. Their life was just comfortable. It was neat. It was convenient. They didn't want to inconvenience themselves by actually taking the story of the star seriously. Herod, he was interested, but the religious leaders, we never hear about them anymore. It's like, yeah, what do, what do these magi know? They weren't hungry. They knew the facts, but they couldn't apply it to their life because there wasn't a hunger there. They knew the Messiah sooner or later was going to be born, but they really weren't looking for him. In fact, if anything was going to upset their nice, quaint, sweet, serene life, they really didn't want it. They had got a nice little box and it worked for them. And while there are Herod types in this world, I think there are even more religious leader type hearts in this world. Good, decent people. You know, they, they, they pay their taxes, they, they kiss babies, they, they, they work for a living, they, they do their best, and they may even have a little bit of religion. I mean, that's just kind of a, the, the, the thing that good, decent people do. We, we've got our life together. It's working for us. And, and you know, the, the, we will pay homage to the religion once a year or, or once a month or maybe once a week even. But, but we're not going to get too fanatical about this. We're not going to get too wild. We're certainly not going to ch go chasing some star across the desert now. Uh, and, and there's a part of it that just wants to keep it safe, keep it under our control. Control. Uh, Jesus is there to make our life a little bit better, but we're not going to surrender our life to him in case he makes us a little bit inconvenient. And so we kind of keep our Christianity or whatever religion we might hold to sort of at bay, a little footnote, a little addendum to the rest of our otherwise nice, sweet life. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, God, if this story is true at all, the last thing it should be is, is a footnote to our life. 
God is not a mediocre, average religious deity. Think about it. Here's the story. Here's, here's what we're here tonight for. God, we're talking the creator. We're talking the supreme being now, okay? The one who created all the molecules he now holds in existence. The big God of all those galaxies, billions and billions and billions of galaxies. That God became a little human being, a little baby born in a, in a dirty, messy, overcrowded barn. That's not normal. That's not your average quaint God. It's even more spectacular when we find the end of the story where he goes to the cross of Calvary and dies a God-forsaken, hellish death, taking upon himself all the sin of the world. Why would God do that? Why would God leave the bliss of his eternal heaven and, and become a human being in the first place? But if he's going to become a human being, why would he go to the cross and die and, and, and take on the sin of the world? And the answer is this. He's not a normal God. He's an outrageous, loving God. He's a God of incomprehensible love, and it all burns towards you. He's passionately in love with you. He's literally dying to be in a relationship with you. He's He's done everything possible to be in a relationship with you. This is not your normal average religious deity. This is Jesus Christ we're talking about. And he doesn't fit into anyone's box. Amen. Amen. What he wants is a people like the Magi who are hungry for him. A people who will, who will, who will, who will make him as important to their life as, as they are to God's life. He, he, he is coming, the Bible says, for a bride. And the love story is incomplete if the bride is only half interested in the groom. No, the, the story here is that the groom does everything imaginable, bursts every religious presupposition we could ever think of to be in a passionate relationship with this bride. But the story is, is skewed if the bride isn't equally as passionate in love with the groom. Jesus Christ wants your heart. He wants you to experience your beauty before him and for you to see his beauty before you. He wants a rapturous love story between you and him. And that's the opposite of a kind of a quaint, casual, formal relationship. I encourage you tonight, if you, uh, you may be good and decent and even somewhat religious, but that's not, that's not the issue here. The question is, is, do you have a relationship with him? Does he have your heart? What he wants is a person who's willing to cross deserts for him, a person who makes him the center of, of every day, gets up in the morning, goes throughout the day, goes to bed at night thinking about your lover like he thinks about you. Sell out to him. Give him your heart. Invite him into your life here tonight. There's the Herod heart that keeps him at bay. There's the religious heart that just kind of makes him into a footnote. And then there's the surprising Magi heart. The Magi's in the story are the ones you'd think would be the most unlikely heroes. These astrologers, these pagans from this hostile nation, Persia. And yet, they're the heroes of the story. God protects them. Why? Because they had, for all of their screwed up thinking that God didn't like, and for all of their screwed up practices that God didn't like, they had a genuinely hungry heart. And for them, the star meant hope. You don't, you don't cross a desert over eight months in the hot sun unless you're driven by a hope. This, somehow, whatever else they knew, in this King Messiah under the house of Israel, there is someone who's going to bring hope and salvation to the world. And God is hungry for people who are hungry for him. They were willing to leave the comfort of their royal palace, where they had royal status doing their astrology for the king, and go through the hardship of this desert, all to bow before the Christ child. And the question we've got to ask ourselves tonight is this, are we willing? Are we willing? Where are we? Honestly, do an introspection of your heart. Are you a Herod heart? I encourage you to let the wall come down 
and, and submit yourself to the one who loves you, who created you, who died for you, and who wants to fill your life with love, joy, and meaning. Are, are, are you a, a religious leader heart? Where you're kind of religious, but keep it at bay. I encourage you to sell out. Sell out, let him in. Commit tonight to making him the center of your existence. Because the goal is to have a magi heart. It doesn't mean everything about your life is going to be perfect. It certainly doesn't mean that all your theology is going to be you know, all in a row. I don't think it is for any of us. It certainly wasn't for the magi. But what God's looking for is your heart. Surrender your heart to him tonight. Would you close your eyes to pray? And I just want to lead us all in a prayer here. Uh, there are undoubtedly some who tonight have a hair at heart. And the idea of surrendering over any freedom is just revolting to you. But I pray you could see that this is, this is the ticket to life. Uh, you want freedom? Surrender to Jesus. There are some who have a, magi or have a religious leader heart. And I'm encouraging you to sell out to sell out. And so I ask you to pray this prayer that I'll just lead us in. This is the first step. To be born, what a beautiful thing, on Christmas Eve to invite Christ into your life for the first time and celebrate at every Christmas your birthday in Jesus. I'd like you to pray this prayer after me. I don't know who you are, but you know who you are. Pray this prayer. And the rest of us will pray it with you because we're in this together. This is how we all come to the, to the, to the, uh, to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that you are Lord, you are God, you're my creator. And I now see that you're passionately in love with me. I confess that I've tried to live my own life, do my own thing, keep you at bay. But I now know that I need you. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me my sin. Make me new. I surrender everything over to you. I surrender my life over to you. And I thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you who uh, prayed that prayer for the first time don't know who you are, but I want to welcome you uh, to the kingdom of God. Amen. 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 We're going to, uh, we're going to uh, enter into a little bit uh, more uh, of a worship time, but if you prayed that prayer for the first time or you recommitted your life to Christ, I would like to encourage you in this. That's the first step. The next step is to get some information about what else is, uh, how to grow in Christ. And so at the end of the service over here, this, uh, there's a man that you probably can't see because it's dark in here. But uh, uh, at the, there's a table over to my right, your left, and there's some information we'd like to give you. It's free, no strings attached. We just are concerned that you get started in your Christian walk. So if you prayed that tonight for the first time, please, after the service, uh, go over and uh, uh, get that information. Praise God. Now we're going to re-enter a time of worship and singing some Christmas stuff to the Lord.
put the words up so that we can sing this together? We can sing this together. Amen. Jesus, bright as the morning star. Jesus, bright as the morning star. Bright as the morning star. Jesus, Jesus, how can I tell you? How can 